Father, you have given us life and breath. You hold us in the palm of your hand. You have given us your Son, our Savior, to come to fulfill all prophecy, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us who were under the curse of the law. Father, you've given us all good things. Every good gift comes from your hand. And so we come before you now giving thanks and giving back to you our tithes and our offerings. Would you make our hearts glad as we give to you and would you bless these, our gifts, and continue to help us, especially as we go into this season where we're we're mindful of gift giving, maybe a little more mindful of gift receiving. Lord, would you cause us to think of how to give ourselves There are moments coming for all of us that are going to be a challenge, that are going to be difficult, that are going to be pressing. The stress and the strain of the season, the gathering together with family, the reconnection with loved ones from maybe some past hurts or whatever. Lord, would you cause us to see Christ as our Savior who gave of himself laying down his life for us that we might do also the same. Make our hearts glad to give, Lord, to give of our very selves, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, we're going to begin reading in verse 4. Isaiah 50, verse 4, this is God's word. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to your word, would you help? Help us to hear. Give us hearts that are receptive, that can not only hear and perceive the words, but can understand unto change, understand unto faith. Lord, only you can do this for us. We submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we're coming now to the third suffering servant song. They're all the suffering servant, especially the fourth, which Clayton will preach from next Sunday. But but each one emphasizes something unique. The first, we saw the humility of the servant the one who would come as a man, meek and lowly. Last week we saw in the second song his mission to redeem God's people from their sins. And today in this third song we'll see the obedience of the servant as he came 
in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It may not sound very Christmassy yet, but hopefully by the end it will. All of these songs look forward to the promised Savior. And while we look forward to his birth and we mark that time at Christmas every year, we're always looking a little beyond, aren't we? Because we know that he came not only to be born, but he came to live and he came to die. And so that is what we will keep our eyes fixed on as we move through this passage this morning. The obedience of Jesus is not something that we might think about as much as we think about his birth or his death or his resurrection or other parts of his life and ministry. Yet his obedience is vitally important for our salvation. In that, he fulfilled all the law in our place, something that we were unable to do, something we recognize that we're unable to do. There are two aspects of Christ's obedience that I want us to consider, and I want you to indulge me. I'm doing this at the beginning while everybody's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed before I have lulled you to sleep. (laughs) Indulge me, if you will, to read from Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. It's a brief reading, but I'm talking here of his active and his passive obedience, two elements of his obedience that are inseparable yet each are vitally important. Listen to Burkhoff. He says, Christ as mediator entered the federal relation in which Adam stood in the state of integrity in order to merit eternal life for the sinner. This constitutes the active obedience of Christ, consisting in all that Christ did to observe the law in its federal aspect as the condition for obtaining eternal life. The active obedience of Christ was necessary to make his passive obedience acceptable with God, that is, to make it an object of God's good pleasure. Christ, as mediator, also entered the penal relation to the law in order to pay the penalty in our stead. His passive obedience consisted in his paying the penalty of sin by his sufferings and death and thus discharging the debt of all his people. That's it. So a lot of big words there, some antiquated words, but the idea is all that we've seen leading up to this, that the Father and the Son enter into the covenant of redemption, and now the Son comes and fulfills the role of Redeemer. He comes as the servant, as promised, to do in his active obedience that that which we could not do, fulfill the law, that is obey, do perfectly what God requires, and then also in his passive obedience to die for our sins. We often think of the passive obedience that he died for our sins as being vital, but here we see that they're inseparable. We needed him to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that is, obey. We needed both. Let me read a more simple, this is from an article by Barry Cooper. He says, Jesus' active obedience is is his perfect obedience to God's law. Jesus' active obedience is his perfect obedience to God's law. His passive obedience is his paying the penalty for our failure to obey God's law. That is his death. And we needed both. We needed not only one who would atone for our sins that we might be forgiven, but we needed one who would come, the second Adam, to do what the first Adam failed to do and what we have failed to do, that is, obey the law of God. The song here portrays that obedient servant. It also foreshadows the trials and sufferings of Christ, which is why we read the passage from Luke that we did this morning. In a similar way as the Messianic Psalms look forward to the trials and the sufferings of Jesus. 
For example, in Psalm 69, we read, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Or the more familiar Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? In a similar fashion, this song looks forward to the trials and the sufferings of Jesus, specifically in verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from the disgrace and spitting. This turmoil that we see in this song is in part why some have called this the Song of Gethsemane, pointing to the garden location of Jesus' prayer in which he wept as, or he, he sweat as drops of blood, what we read again in Luke this morning, that he experienced incredible anxiety and difficulty as he said to the Father, let not this cup, you know, let this cup pass from me, let not my will but your, your will be done. And while we grieve that he had to suffer for our sins, we glory that he did so. That his faithful obedience to carry out this mission and to obey God's law in our place, both his perfect active obedience and his passive obedience, came in our place that we might be saved. This is why in our celebration at Christmas of the babe who came born, we rejoice that he came not only to be born but to live and to die for us, that we might be children of God. And so in the verses leading up to this passage in chapter 50, if we were to look back to chapter 49, there's this discourse that Isaiah is recounting, so to speak, between God and his people. The people have forgotten the faithfulness of God, and they begin falsely accusing him. They say in 49.14, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. God responds to this. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And the defense continues in where God reminds his people of his faithfulness to them, to carry them, to deliver them again and again and again, and then begins to point forward specifically in these servant songs, now here in chapter 50, in this one that breaks forth in the midst of this discourse to announce in verse 4, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. We remember from our recent study in Matthew's gospel how the people responded to the teachings of Jesus. Matthew summarizes, particularly at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus came not with an authority of his own, but with the authority of the Father. He continually acknowledges this. He says in John 14, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus came, submitted, born as a man, to do the will of the Father, having learned obedience as a human. And this can be hard for us to think about or try and understand when we think of the Trinity or his divinity and and how all of this worked when he put on flesh to dwell among us. But remember how back in time we saw in the first song that the Son and the Father covenant together for him to take on this role to redeem his people. 
And part of this role is his active obedience. That is his perfectly obeying in our place. That he would learn obedience as a human. That he would take on this role. That he might make atonement for our sins to suffice for our redemption. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's why Burkhoff says what he says in the end, that his active obedience was necessary to then make his passive obedience suffice. A pleasure to the Father. Right there, Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. And so in verse 4, we see this, that he's come to, to, to learn, to submit, to obey, but that also he's come in a way that is compassionate, a way that relates to us, that he has, he will understand and be able to relate to his people as he has walked in the flesh. He comes with his word given to sustain the weary. That is, he will have compassion upon us in our sins. He will not only refuse to smother a smoldering wick or break a bruised reed, he will also bring healing and restoration. Jesus calls his followers to come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As believers, we come back to these words of our Savior again and again because we're comforted by them. To know and to hear the Good Shepherd say these things to us, uh, to give us and grant us that peace that is beyond our understanding. That in the storms of life, when the heaviness weighs us down, the strains and the hardships that we endure, we hear the words of a servant who knows how to sustain with a word him who is weary. In the second part of verse 4 and then into verse 5, we see the servant in humility learning again. As the second Adam who came to do what the first Adam failed to do, morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Again, we see the willingness of the servant to be instructed, to learn. It's a picture of what we should do and have failed to do, to listen to the word of the Father each morning that we awaken, that we should submit to his instruction trust Him in obedience, that we should not rebel or turn back. And of course, in all of those things, we recognize our failures, right? That we have failed in all of those respects. We've done the very opposite of those things. We awaken to our own voice. We follow our own heart's desire. We ignore the pure instruction of the Word and instead trust our own wisdom. We do rebel and do turn back like sheep who turn to our own way and go astray. But the servant has come to obey perfectly in our place. And because he has in his active obedience done so, perfectly fulfilling the law, we get to rest in his finished work. Our resting is not in that we don't obey. We will obey. We will want to obey. We will desire to obey. But we know that we won't do it perfectly. And so we rest in the fact that he said, it is finished. And he has done it all. His call is not heavy. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. Because he's done it all. And because his law is good for us. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was in the father's making the servant sin in our place. He who knew no sin that he suffered at the hands 
of men in his life. That's what we read about in verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He did it willingly. Something that's hard for us to understand. Jesus foretold his death in John 10 saying, no one takes it, that is his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. But even though he did it voluntarily, does not lessen the suffering and the pain and the humiliation that he incurred. We read this morning, Matthew's account, they spit in his face and struck him. Some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Mark's account, they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. The servant obeyed in suffering that we might be made righteous. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Yet in his tremendous suffering, for our sake, he continually entrusted himself to the Father. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, First Peter 2. This is what we see in verses 7 to 9 of the third servant song. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The servant is confident in both the father's will and the father's care for him while he carries out the mission of redemption. He knows that, in a sense, the father has him in his hands. There's great mystery in this, again, in the son's putting on humanity. But we do see from Scripture that Jesus experienced many normal human experiences. Things that we included in our prayer and in our readings this morning. He included, he experienced many normal human emotions. We read the passage where he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I've only seen this happen in one person in my life, uh, a person that as a kid I always thought was the strongest and everything. It was my dad. He was in pain, and I don't remember what it was for. He, he's been carved on more than a Thanksgiving turkey because he's had more accidents than me, remarkably. But it was in one of these events that he was in incredible pain. I remember watching him, and he had the capillaries burst, and he actually sweat drops of blood. The amount of pain that you have to be in to do that, I can't even imagine. And so we see that Christ experienced the grief. This was before the physical pain that he was in. The grief and the agony of what he was about to incur that the capillaries in his head burst and he sweat drops of blood. Jesus experienced frustration at times. We see this when uh, the disciple, we see this a number of times, but my favorite is when the disciples refuse to let the children come to him. And we might miss this, but Mark includes uh, his, his response. It says, when Jesus saw this, the disciples refusing to allow the children, he was indignant and said to them, yeah, Jesus was indignant. He was a normal, in that sense, normal human being. He experienced the things that we experience. Over and over again, we see Jesus come up to people and experience compassion. And yet, in all of these normal human emotional experiences that he went through, he continually entrusted himself to the Father. He knows that because Yahweh helps him, 
he will not be disgraced. And again in this, don't miss the active obedience of Jesus for us. Because this is how all of us should react to the stress and strain in life. And we acknowledge this. To know that the Lord, because the Lord helps us, we will not be disgraced. That when, uh, you know, when, when trials and difficulties come, this, this knowledge should erase all anxiety. We shouldn't be fearful. We shouldn't lack peace because of the assurance of God's love and care for us. But we all know we failed. We do it almost daily. Where even though we know that the Lord holds us in the palm of His hands, we still are filled with anxiety and fear and distress. So hear me in saying, take comfort in the active obedience of Jesus in your place. That when you and I fail in these ways, Jesus has obeyed perfectly. Perfectly trusting in our place. We see also in verse 8 that he is intentional in his purpose. The second part of verse 8, setting his face like a flint toward the task that he has taken on. This is an idiom that we see uh, used to describe determination. Flint is a hard stone, and so the idea is that one fixes their face in the direction in which they're going, and they will not be moved. They are determined to get to their objective. And the outcome for the servant is that he will not be put to shame. He is confident of this. And we know in the resurrection and the ascension, we see the vindication of Jesus, that he was not put to shame. Yet, because of the active obedience of Jesus in our place, we who have failed to keep our face focused... Now, by faith, can trust the one who did so perfectly. Every time we get off track, every time we get distracted, squirrel, every time we think that there's something else that's more important than what we've been called to and what we've been saved to, we can trust the active obedience of Christ, who never got off course, but stayed stayed true to the, to the task that was before him. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 8, we see the servant again profess his vindicator's trustworthiness. He then questions those who would falsely accuse him. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. He is so confident in his position that he invites those who would contend against him to come, to stand with him, to approach him. All through the gospel accounts, we see Jesus stand against the religious, the false teachers, those who would oppress others and mistreat them, the, the proud, Jesus was not fearful of man. He was the epitome of Psalm 118.6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And nowhere is this clearer possibly than at the trial of Jesus. Because he stood before uh, the man who represented the greatest power on earth at the time. He had been brought before him based on false accusations. And Pilate declared to the people, I find no guilt in him. And yet Jesus stood before him and obeyed in our place without fear. He was not afraid of false accusations like I am or like you may be. He didn't need to become defensive. He didn't even call down legions of angels, although he could have. He faced his adversaries for you and for me. This ruler could not declare him guilty, but the people demanded that he be crucified. And Jesus says their end is the same. It is certain. It is destruction. Verse 9, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. 
Their end is not just physical destruction and that they will die. We will all face physical death. It is that it is both physical and eternal. It is a spiritual death that he points to here. It is hell. Physical death shouldn't be our greatest fear. We're both body and spirit. Our spirits will continue beyond the temporal realm. So what awaits us beyond this life ought to be a greater concern to us than the day in and day out experiences that we have here. Because we have all sinned, hell is the just outcome, the righteous requirement of the law which we have failed to keep. It is to get what we deserve. If we got what we deserved, we would get hell. Yet God in His mercy sent forth His Son, the servant, to obey in our place that we would not have to face hell. Jesus obeyed actively by keeping the law perfectly and living life without sin. And then because of his active obedience, the passive obedience of his atonement for our sins becomes the satisfaction for the righteous requirement. He did everything for us that we could not do for ourselves. We were helpless and hopeless and he came, not only atoning and forgiving us, but making us righteous. Because of his perfect obedience, we can, by faith, receive as the gift of his grace the fruit of that obedience. In other words, if we will only put our trust in him, we will be justified. Justified means made right, but it also, in our case, means made righteous. In the strict sense, it means made right in that we are forgiven, that our sins are paid for, that legally we are gone, we are moved from a status of guilty to innocent. But we had nothing in our account, and so Jesus obeyed, and his righteousness is transferred to our account. So it's also that we are made righteous. We are given his righteousness. The call is for us to believe this. For you who have never done so, today is the day of salvation. As we saw last week, that if we would confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Christ has done this and been raised from the dead, we will be saved. This is what we're called to believe. For you who have believed, hear me in saying this, believe and keep believing. Know that Christ obeyed perfectly for you. Know that he did for you what you have failed to do again and again and will fail to do again tomorrow. Know that when you face trials and difficulties and are worried and are hurting, that you can go to him who did for you what you are unable to do in your pain. When you can't find the hope or the peace or the faith or the love or the freedom or the side, go to Jesus. Call on him in your trouble and claim him and his active obedience as your only hope and resting place. Because he obeyed, you can rest in the midst of life's storms. Now, we know that this is so much easier said than done. Right now, we have paused in our weekly routine and gathered in this moment of corporate worship, in part because we need to be reminded and refreshed of this. We all acknowledge and we sing about and we we hear it and we say amen. But we know that when we leave here, the challenge becomes all the more real, all the more difficult. So hear the hope that is ours in Jesus, the obedient servant. When he announced it is finished in his final breath before dying on the cross, he meant it. It's done. We have nothing left to do but to trust him. We don't add anything. This means that when you can't see straight or make sense of life, 
trust the obedient servant. When you are crushed by the weight of your circumstances and you feel like you can't breathe, trust the obedient servant. When grief overwhelms you so that you sway between weeping and rage, trust the obedient servant. We are going to suffer and face trials of various kinds in this life, but we follow and trust the one who has gone before us. Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And just as he trusted the Father, we too must entrust ourselves to God. None of us are guaranteed ease and comfort in this life. Most of us recognize that is simply a facade in this this world as it is. Our hope and our faith must be situated externally. Our hope and our faith must be situated eternally on one who is outside of this realm in which we live, the one who made it all, who holds it all together in the palm of his hands. He's the only one worth trusting. The servant has obeyed in our place making a way for us to God. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The one who has come to fulfill all the promises and to make a way for us, not only in his death, forgiving us of our sins, but living in our place and obeying perfectly in our place. And so remember that. Remember that as you go through this season and through all the pressures that come with this season, that you have a Savior who has obeyed perfectly in your place. He is the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, we confess that you are the only one worth trusting. And yet we're going to get lured into trusting something else in a moment. If not in a moment, then in an hour. Something else is going to call on us. Something else is going to request our trust and our allegiance. Father, we confess in this moment you are the only one worth trusting. You are the only sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Would you help us believe and cling to that? Jesus, we thank you for your perfect obedience in our place. Every time that we put our our hope in other objects or every time we fear other people, every every time we are anxious, every time we're worried, every time we lose hope, would you cause us not only to trust the Father, the way you trusted him. But would you cause us to trust you who did so perfectly for us? Thank you for the redemption that is ours by your blood. We honor and praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together our hymn of